0: What Descartes tries to do is to construct now a set of considerations which will enable him to put the world back. Though it has to be, it has to be said straight away that the, the form in which the world is put back is rather different from that of common sense. We don't just, as it were, having moved all the furniture out of the attic and of the stuff it all back again in a totally unreconstructed form. We have a different view of the world when we reconstitute it than we did in our everyday common sense experience. And incidentally, we'll come to how he does that, but it's a very important fact about the method of doubt that that is so. Uh, It's extremely important because sometimes, sometimes people talk about Descartes' doubt as if all he did, he had a kind of gratuitous doubt and then sort of put the whole world back again afterwards. But it's very important that not only does he put it back for very special reasons, but that what he puts back has actually been subtly modified. Hi, I'm Dr. Devin Sanchez-Curry, and you're listening to Dialogues, Meditations, and Analyses, a companion podcast for the Problems of Philosophy course I teach at West Virginia University. Descartes got up to after undertaking the method of doubt that we experienced firsthand last episode. In this episode, we'll explore the medieval philosophical worldview that Descartes sought to replace, as well as the fundamental elements of the new worldview that he sought to replace it with. Descartes pitched his philosophical project in an intentionally devout way, In the letter that precedes the Meditations, in which Descartes sought the endorsement of the most intellectually prominent Catholic Church leaders in Paris, the deans and doctors of the Holy Faculty of Theology at the Sorbonne. He sought their endorsement so that he could get away with speculating about God and the soul at a time when the Church was highly suspicious of thinkers developing heretical views. In his letter, Descartes pitches philosophy as a tool for converting atheists to Christianity. Believers don't need philosophical reasons to believe. They've got faith. But atheists don't already have faith, so they have to be reasoned into belief, and then find later that faith complements their reason. That's what Descartes tells the church leaders he's up to in the meditations. But while he's proclaiming that motive publicly, he's privately confiding in a friend, Marin Mersenne, that he has much deeper ambitions, Ambitions that the church leaders at the Sorbonne would not be too happy with. Descartes wrote to Mersenne, quote, I may tell you, between ourselves, that these six meditations contain all the foundations of my physics, but please do not tell people, for that might make it harder for supporters of Aristotle to approve them. I hope that readers will gradually get used to my principles, and recognize their truth, before they notice that they destroy the principles of Aristotle, end quote. As Bernard Williams notes, Descartes' method of doubt had a very specific destructive purpose in mind. He didn't just want to examine all of his opinions. He wanted to get rid of the medieval Aristotelian philosophy he was taught in school, that everybody was taught in school, once and for all, and replace it wholesale with his own modern Cartesian philosophy. Inviting his readers to meditate with him and doubt literally everything they thought they knew was a neat trick for keeping their traditional schooling from getting in the way of his new teachings. So with that ulterior motive of Descartes in mind, let's take a step back and talk about the Aristotelian worldview that he wanted to demolish. Aristotle was Plato's student, just as Plato was Socrates' student. But Aristotle came to out-influence even his illustrious teacher and teacher's teacher. For most of the nearly 2,000 years between when Aristotle lived and Descartes lived, philosophers in the Christian, Jewish, and Islamic traditions usually didn't refer to Aristotle by name. Instead, they just gushed endlessly about the philosopher. There was never any question about which philosopher they were referring to. Now, that's not to say that these fanboys weren't doing original philosophy in their own right. Though many of their texts were pitched as commentaries on Aristotle's philosophy, we've already seen in this episode that philosophers' pitches can be misleading. Influential Muslim scholars like Averroes and Avicenna, as well as Catholic scholars like Thomas Aquinas and Francisco Suarez, were not mere commentators on Aristotle, but fellow master philosophers who combined Aristotelian ideas with their religious traditions to produce new philosophical doctrines and arguments. So when Descartes, writing in the 17th century, refers to quote-unquote the principles of Aristotle... He's not really talking about Aristotle, the ancient Greek dude. Instead, he's talking about the dominant principles of late medieval philosophy, which were a kind of fusion of Aristotelian philosophy and Abrahamic religious theology. By the time Descartes was growing up, the centuries-long process of fusing Aristotelian and religious ideas had become pretty much complete. Scholars still quibbled about fringe details, and there were of course some dissenters, folks who bought into Plato's philosophy more than Aristotle's, for instance, within the church as well as without. But most learned Europeans accepted a broadly Aristotelian worldview, and a particular conception of how to make that worldview work alongside religious faith had long been orthodoxy. It was what everybody who went to school was taught in school. Three of the main tenets of this orthodox worldview were as follows. First, with regard to physics, Aristotelians held that the world is a finite bubble with the earth at its center. The fundamental building blocks of Aristotelian physics were the four classic elements, earth, water, fire, and air. Second, with regard to metaphysics, Aristotelians held that there are lots of different kinds of things in the world. Each kind of animal, vegetable, and mineral has its own distinctive form that gives it its essence. For instance, the form of an acorn is the way it is organized such that it will grow into an oak tree. Relatedly, Aristotle's physics and metaphysics are thoroughly teleological. That is, they have to do with essential purposes. Each object's form organizes that object's matter towards fulfilling its essential natural purpose. The acorn has the natural purpose of growing into a gray oak. Human beings, because we take the form of rational animals, have the natural purpose of learning how to think rationally, and ultimately, to do philosophy. Third, with regard to epistemology, Aristotelians held that there is nothing in the intellect that was not first in the senses. In other words, if you haven't experienced it, if you haven't seen it, or heard it, or touched it, or smelled it, or tasted it, then you can't think about it no matter how rational an animal you may be. That's Aristotelianism. Descartes intended his meditations on first philosophy to show that all three of these tenets were untenable. The method of doubt would sweep them away. They were all dubitable if only people tried to doubt them. Now, Descartes wasn't interested in skepticism for skepticism's sake. He didn't merely want to destroy the principles of Aristotle. Rather, he wanted to replace them with his own principles of physics, metaphysics, and epistemology, which he thought jailed better with both his own devout Catholic faith and with the new physics being developed by Renaissance thinkers like Galileo. Late in his life, Descartes wrote a book titled Principles of Philosophy, which he intended to be a textbook that could be taught in schools so that students would learn his Cartesian philosophy rather than the old Aristotelian philosophy. Descartes' new principles went like this. First, with regard to physics, Descartes imagined an infinite, homogeneous universe made up entirely of little bits of matter that he called corpuscles. Corpuscles have size, shape, position, directed motion, and no other properties. For Descartes, everything that happens in the physical universe comes down to these atom-like bits of matter bumping into each other, and rubbing up against each other in ways dictated by a few simple laws of physics. According to this new, mechanical worldview, there are no Aristotelian forms that give objects and organisms their essences, and there's no natural teleology, no purposes built into nature. Instead, with regard to metaphysics, Descartes was a substance dualist. He thought there were just two kinds of thing in the universe. There's physical stuff, made up of corpuscles, And then there are minds, characterized essentially by consciousness. Mind and matter are fundamentally different kinds of thing, and neither one can be reduced to the other. Third, with regard to epistemology, Descartes held that God imbued human minds with innate ideas that allowed humans to directly perceive certain truths. Thus, for Descartes, the human intellect can achieve some knowledge via its own power of judgment, operating independently of sense experience. We'll talk more about all three of these principles over the next couple weeks. For now, just remember that Descartes wanted the method of doubt to demolish the Aristotelian worldview, to pluck the bad apples out of the barrel, so that he could replace it with his new Cartesian worldview, the sound apples he ends up putting back in the barrel. As the Apple metaphor indicates, Descartes didn't intend the method of doubt to be a purely negative enterprise. It was a method of destroying belief in the main tenets of Aristotelianism, yes, but it was also a method of generating absolute certainty by yielding new core beliefs that were immune to doubt, that the meditator was psychologically incapable of doubting. Descartes was a mathematician as well as a philosopher. In high school, you all learned to plot graphs on the Cartesian coordinates he invented. He knew that the secret to math's success as in an intellectual enterprise was that it started with axioms and then built elaborate mathematical systems in which each part of the system could be proved to be true on the basis of the axioms. Descartes wanted that same kind of proof, that same absolute certainty, for philosophy. If the method of doubt could show him which of his beliefs were indubitable, then he could take them to be axioms of his new philosophical system and prove the rest of his physics, metaphysics, and epistemology to be true on the basis of those initial indubitable beliefs. Generating the first of those axioms is precisely the heady task that the meditator undertakes in the second meditation. So with that goal of Descartes in mind, let's turn to the reading. Here's some notes on the reading, Yep. I said notes on the reading. In order to distinguish Descartes, the male author of the meditations, from the meditator, the character narrating the meditations, I'm going to use she her pronouns to refer to the meditator. So for this week you read Meditations one and two. In Meditation one, the meditator doubts everything she is psychologically capable of doubting. In meditation two, she assesses what if anything, remains. The meditator hopes that even if only one certainty remains, that certainty can be used as the foundation of a new metaphysics. At first she worries that this hope is ill-founded, that, like Socrates, the only thing about which she's absolutely certain is that she knows she knows nothing. But then she realizes, here's something. Insofar as she's doubting, she's doubting. In ordinary life, it's absurd to try to doubt all sorts of things. It's usually absurd to doubt that you're awake rather than dreaming, that you have hands, or that 2 plus 3 equals 5. But in the context of Descartes' metaphysical project, given that he's asking the reader to follow the meditator and committing to the meditative project of doubting everything they're capable of doubting, these doubts aren't absurd at all. Nevertheless, one doubt remains totally absurd. Indeed, impossible, even in this special context. That is, to try to doubt that you are doubting. After all, as soon as the meditator tries to doubt that she's doubting, she's by that very act doubting again, and so cannot possibly doubt it. And of course, doubting is a species of thinking. If you're doubting, then you're thinking. And if you're thinking, then you must exist, the thing doing the thinking. Thus, the meditator emerges from the method of doubt, in Meditation 2, by declaring cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore, I am. Scholars have nicknamed this famous declaration the cogito. Actually, Descartes says the exact phrase cogito ergo sum in a different text, the autobiographical Discourse on Method. In the meditations, the meditator instead says, I can finally decide that this proposition, I am, I exist, whenever it is uttered by me or conceived in the mind, is necessarily true. But this is just a longer-winded way of saying, I think, therefore I am. Let's take a moment to head off one common misinterpretation of the cogito right away. By saying, I think, therefore I am... The meditator is not saying that she's essentially rational, or that thinking is her purpose in life, or anything lofty like that. Descartes actually does happen to believe those things, but he doesn't think the meditator has good reason to assert anything so lofty so early in her meditations. Unlike some college students with I think therefore I am posters on their dorm room walls, the meditator is not celebrating being a nerd. Instead, she's merely saying that, even when she's trying to doubt everything she's capable of doubting, she can never doubt that she exists, since she can never doubt that she's doubting, and hence thinking, and hence existing. That's all, literally everything, that the meditator takes herself to know at the start of the second meditation. That means the following question remains to be asked. I think, therefore I am. But who am I? what am I like? What else cannot be doubted about myself? The Meditator first considers the Aristotelian answer to these questions, which, for reasons discussed earlier in this podcast, Descartes' 17th century readers were also likely to consider first. The Aristotelian answer is that the Meditator is a human being, and as such, a rational animal. An animal that doesn't just sense and perceive and move around, but also thinks rationally. But Descartes thought that this was way too complex and unclear an idea to start with. How do you define rational exactly? How do you define animal? Are these really things we're absolutely certain about? The meditator tries to start simpler. What about that I have a body, that this is my hand I'm holding before me? Before meditating, the features of her body seemed much more obvious to her than the features of her soul. Her hand's right there, in front of her, whereas her mind is, quote, something rarefied and subtle, like a wind or fire or thin air. Minds are hard to grasp. Handshakes, pretty easy, unless you're living through a pandemic. But now, upon meditating, she realizes that she might be deceived into trusting her senses which are her only source of information about her body. So she was wrong. Indeed, she had it exactly backwards. Our own minds are easier to grasp, better known to us, than even our own bodies. So, through meditating on reasons to doubt everything she is psychologically capable of doubting, the meditator is left with one piece of knowledge. She knows that she's a thinking thing. A thing that doubts, that understands, that affirms, that denies, that wishes to do this and does not wish to do that, and also that imagines and perceives by the senses. Notice that this is an epistemological claim, not a metaphysical claim. It's not that she's actually just a thinking thing with no other characteristics. It's that all she knows for sure right now about herself is that she's a thinking thing. Now, Descartes ultimately rejects the notion that we humans are just thinking things, disembodied souls. He thinks instead that we're mind-body unions. So what's the point of having the meditator conceive of herself solely as a thinking thing? Well, Descartes' point so far is twofold. First, that even when the meditator tries to doubt everything, she still knows that she is, at least in part, a thinking thing. And second, that she can conceive of herself as a thinking thing alone, that is, as a disembodied thinking thing. Even though Descartes' considered metaphysics of the person rejects the view that people are pure disembodied intellects, it's also crucial to his metaphysics that it's conceivable, even if not true, that people could be pure disembodied intellects. I'll let you sit with and mull over that subtle thought for the time being. We'll come back to the metaphysical purpose, to which Descartes is going to put the point that the meditator can conceive of herself as a pure intellect, in next week's episode. And we'll finish discussing meditation too. In particular, we'll discuss the rules of method that Descartes uses to structure his inquiry. And then we'll meditate on beeswax together. And finally, I'll field any remaining questions you have about meditations 1 and 2. Alright, that's it for this week's episode. We'll continue our discussion of Descartes with an analysis of meditations 3 through 6, as well as the Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia's sharp criticism of Descartes' metaphysics of the mind-body relation, next week on episode 8 of Dialogues, Meditations, and